Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to our scripture reading. We are back in Matthew. Matthew chapter 19 is our sermon text. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. It contains no errors in the original languages in which it was given. In this case, it was Greek. Uh, And we have the promise in faithful translations that it remains to us the authoritative word of God. So listen uh, to me as I uh, read this um, good translation. Uh, I'm going to be mentioning translations in the sermon here in a little bit, uh, so it's important uh, that I emphasize that point. The word of the Lord. And it came about that when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to him, testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together Let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, we come to you in Christ's name. We thank you that uh, we can trust in you uh, at times like this when your word is being proclaimed uh, by a sinner. Lord, that is, uh, it is, uh, it's it's a touchy thing, Lord. Uh, For I am a sinner, we're all sinners. Um, and uh, saved by grace, but yet uh, struggle with, with sin. And so the handling of your word is exceedingly important, that it be handled aright. Would you please help me to handle it aright? Would you please help all of us to be responsive uh, to that word? Even though things like what you're saying here are difficult to hear, for many of us. We ask that you be with us now, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Kids, um, now and then, uh, people, yourselves included, you who are children, want to uh, join things together that are apart. I'll give you an example. Uh, children oftentimes like to uh, glue uh, paper together, two pieces of paper, or uh, uh, pieces of wood, perhaps you're building something, or pieces of plastic, like uh, if you're building a model airplane or uh, something like that. Or sometimes pieces of cloth or uh, other things, uh, maybe a uh, cup and the handle that uh, is no longer on the cup but needs to be back on the cup because you like the cup and want to keep it. These are different reasons, different things that we like to, or people oftentimes want to bring together. Um, And we will often use glue to get the job done, right? Uh, Typically we do. But the type of glue that we use um, and that you might use depends on how important it is to the person using the glue that the two things he wants joined together stay together. So, for example, people will use, and perhaps you've used, Elmer's glue. I used to use that a lot when I was a kid uh, in school. And Elmer's glue is a good glue for uh, putting things together where it's not terribly important that those things stay together forever. Because Elmer's glue is, is decent, but it's not the strongest of glues. But if somebody wants something to stick together for a really long time, they use another kind of glue, something like Gorilla Glue or Super Glue to get the job done because it's a much stronger glue and uh, it'll, it'll keep the two things that the person wants together together uh, almost forever. Not quite, but almost for a long time. The reason I bring this all up to you kids is there is a sense in which uh, there is a spiritual, an invisible spiritual glue, I'm going to call it that anyway, uh, that God uses to join couples together in marriage, a man and a woman together in marriage. And it's a very strong spiritual glue. And I'll mention it a little bit later in the sermon. I'll reference this again. But I want you to keep that in mind, that God uses a strong glue, spiritual glue, not real physical glue, to put two people together as husband and wife. And your mommy and daddy would be an example of that. I want to give you the background here, a little bit of background on uh, on this verse and and its context, um, just, just so you know kind of why some of this is going on. Uh, the fact that this confrontation takes place in Judea is significant. You read there in verse two, we, or verse one, we see of chapter nineteen, and it came about that when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee. So he was up in uh, the northern regions in Galilee, and he comes into the region of Judea, which is the central part of Israel, where where uh, Jerusalem is located. He's heading back to Jerusalem uh, in order to die. He knows that's what's going to happen, and he's heading there. And he's now in the region of Jerusalem. And, or of Judea, rather. And that's important because Judea was governed by a man named Herod Antipas of the Herod family, the Herod line. And Antipas had recently divorced his wife in order to marry another woman named Herodias. 
And Herodias, she too, had recently divorced her husband in order to be with Antipas, Herod Antipas. Now remember, you recall that it was John the Baptist's condemnation of that unholy union between Herod and Herodias that landed him in prison and eventually resulted in his beheading through the scheming of his wicked wife, Herodias. But it was his condemnation of that marriage that resulted in his ultimately in his untimely death. Murder, I should say. And it is highly likely, we can't crawl into their heads, but it is highly likely that the Pharisees who approached Jesus on this occasion hoped by this line of questioning about divorce that they could trick Jesus into doing as John had done. And that is condemn uh, marriages like Herod's and Herodias's marriage, and that marriage perhaps even specifically, uh, and thereby earn Herod and Herodias's ire that brought about John's demise, and perhaps, let's hope, they would thinking to themselves, would bring about Jesus' demise as well. So that's the probable motives behind this questioning by these uh, wicked men. Religious leaders, by the way. Important to remember that. There are a lot of wicked religious leaders. But that brings me to the two points that we're going to focus on in the remainder of our time here together. And they are these. It is, with one exception, a serious sin for you as a Christian to initiate the dissolution of your marriage. Excuse me. One more time. First point, it is with one exception a serious sin for you as a Christian to initiate the dissolution of your marriage, and I'll explain that in a moment. And then secondly, the only circumstance under which you as a Christian are allowed to initiate the dissolution of your marriage. That's the second point. So the first point is, with that one exception that comes at the end, uh, it is a serious sin for a Christian to initiate the dissolution of his or her marriage. This is verses 1 through 6 is where we find this teaching. And by by the way, by the dissolution of the marriage, of course, I am referring to initiating a divorce of your from your spouse. That's the 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 another way of saying exactly the same thing. Um, and this is the case, it is a serious sin to initiate a divorce from your spouse whether or not you're married to a believer or an unbeliever. That's pretty clear from the teaching of Scripture elsewhere. John, not John, but Paul and his writings in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere, that that's in fact the case. It's serious business. It's a serious sin. And that getting an unbiblical divorce, a divorce that is not sanctioned by God in Scripture, that that is a serious sin is evident, first of all, from this passage that we're reading here. And secondly, from what we read in Malachi, chapter 2, verse 16. And by the way, the ESV has the best translation of the Hebrew here, uh, not the New American Standard uh, or some of the other translations. Uh, and so I'm going to read the ESV translation, and you might keep that in mind when you... Because uh, 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 most translations say, God, I hate divorce. That is actually not... Probably, I'm convinced anyway, that's not the best rendering of the Hebrew. Best rendering is uh, given by the ESV, and here it is. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment 
with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So the Lord is saying there, the man who does not love, in other words, that's where the I hate divorce comes from, it's to not love. Uh, that is probably a better understanding of the Hebrew here and probably the best way to render the passage. Uh, and it indicates that divorce is a bad thing. Under, under most circumstances, uh, divorce is a bad thing because a man is not, uh, and, and by implication a woman, is not loving the spouse that they are married to uh, by, by, by initiating a divorce. So it's, it's a sin when it's done improperly. Why? Why? What are the reasons that with the one exception that we're going to get to, it is a serious sin for you or me as, Christ, as a Christian to initiate a divorce from our spouse? There are three reasons that Jesus gives in this passage that are uh, mentioned. First is this. Um, it is a sin because of the way that God created the human race, created mankind. In verses 4 and 5, in answer to the Pharisees' objection, uh, or the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them, meaning Adam and Eve, from the beginning made them male and female? And for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. God, you see, created mankind, as, as the text from uh, uh, Genesis 1 indicates, as both male and female. Mankind is male and female, in other words, consisting of two distinct sexes or genders. And when God created Adam as the first human being, he did not create him as a, if I can put it this way, a sexless neuter. Okay? He was not androgynous. He was male. with all that that entails. And God created him this way before he ever created Eve. He created him as male, anticipating that he was going to create Eve as female. And so Adam's creation as a male was for the purpose of intimate union with the female that God would create for him, namely Eve, who had not yet been created, was about, was soon going to be. So in other words, God literally, uh, they, Adam and Eve, were literally made for each other in the way they were constituted by God, uh, as in their gender, individual, each, each one of their gender, uh, or sex, uh, as, uh, as human beings. And as verse 5 indicates, uh, the, the quote there from uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, God created the institution of marriage to be the relational arrangement, we'll call it that, through which this divinely desired intimate union between male and female human beings would be properly exhibited and displayed. It's to be in marriage. And thus, the quote from Genesis 2.24. So that's the first reason uh, that it's a serious sin for a Christian to initiate uh, the divorce, uh, a divorce, because God, uh, because of the way God created the human race as male and female. Second reason is because in marriage, the husband and the wife become one flesh. They become one flesh. 
which is to say, this, or this is not just, by the way, alluding to the physical intimacy with, that is shared between a husband and his wife in a marriage. It is certainly alluding to that. But it is alluding to more than that. It is also alluding to the fact that when a man and a woman are married, they are welded together relationally in such a way that they are no longer to be considered apart from one another. They are a relational unit, you might say. And this is, by the way, the glue that I was talking about with you children when I was saying earlier, this glue, this spiritual glue that God has used to bring a man and a woman together as a married couple. It is, uh, it is, uh, God in that, in that marriage welds people together in such a way that their, part of their identity is as a married person in union with their spouse. And the fact that they are now one entity in marriage strongly implies that there should be no going back to their former condition as two separate entities, shall we say. The fact that they are one flesh implies it's not to be disturbed once it's done by God. Which brings me to the third reason why it's a sin uh, to uh, divorce in an unbiblical way. And that is, all true marriages are, in some sense, as I've already indicated, brought into existence by none other than God himself. And we read this in, again in verse 6. He, that is God, by his providential working, through ordinary means brings every marriage that is a true marriage into being by his providence. He brings it, whether they be Christian marriages or non-Christian marriages or mixed marriages. He's the one that brings them into being by his providential working. Now, of course, this is not true of so-called gay marriages, which are not marriages at all, but are in fact horrible abominations in the sight of God. There is no such thing as uh, gay marriage. Now, regardless of what the United States government says with the Supreme Court. But, real marriages, this is true of. And since God is the providential author of every true marriage, uh, no human being, especially not a Christian, who claims to love God, should dare to seek to dissolve that bond that God created unless the exception applies, which we'll get to. So then, these are uh, the reasons why uh, it is, uh, uh, with one exception, a serious sin for you or me as Christian to uh, leave our marriage. And it is sinful in spite of a fact that the Pharisees brought up. And the Pharisees brought up the fact that Moses, and God through Moses, of course, because God was writing uh, as the ultimate author of the, uh, of the uh, Mosaic Law through the pen of Moses, through the hand of Moses. Uh, it's, it, it's sinful in spite of the fact that uh, God tolerated the practice of divorce under the old covenant administration of the covenant of grace. He tolerated it. Can't be denied. The text here, even in Matthew 19, indicates uh, that as much. Uh, Jesus does in verse 8, that Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Uh, he gives the reason, of course, because of your hardness of heart. I'll say more in a minute, but I want to back up to something uh, to talk about this uh, exception 
Verse 7, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? I want to go back to the passage in Deuteronomy that the the Pharisees were alluding to. And turn with me there. It's in in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Turn with me there in your Bibles. And this is going to be important what version you're reading from. Okay, I'm first going to read to you from the King James. And I'm just going to read the first verse of the King James in Deuteronomy 24. And then I'm going to read, reread, uh, well, not the entire part of it, but the, uh, the NASB, the New American Standard. So let me read the King James. The King James says this, uh, Deuteronomy 24.1, When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then... Let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. Okay? That's how the new, or how the King James, not the new King James, but how the King James renders it. Um, and the King James, as you can hear it right there, by the way, from what I read, the King James, um, translation sounds as if divorce is being commanded by Moses and therefore God under the circumstances envisioned, which the new, uh, the King James calls some uncleanness. Most modern translators, uh, translations render that, uh, some indecency. Okay? That's the way the King James makes it sound. Well, if, if you see this indecency, boom, you're out of the marriage. You need to, you need to hand her a certificate of divorce and send her away. And only men could do this back in that day, uh, to their, to their wives, not vice versa. But, that's the King James. And the King James is a wonderful translation in many ways, but it's also flawed in a number of ways. And it's flawed here, okay? A much better case, stronger case, can be made for the the NASB that I read from, or I'm going to read from, the ESV, and the new King James, interestingly, uh, renders it differently than the King James does. So I'm going to read uh, uh, Deuteronomy 24, the first four verses, okay? Uh, and I'll uh, be quick about it. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, no, remember the King James says at this point, then he shall write her, a, give her a writ of divorcement. The, the then there. But that's not what the New American Standard does. So when a man takes a wife, and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, uh, out of his house. I'm going to skip a couple verses and then get to verse 4. Then, that's where the New American Standard puts the then, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since he has been since she has been defiled, and it goes on. My point is here, the then is differently placed in the King James versus uh, the New American Standard, ESV, uh, New King James, and some others as well. And a better case can be made for the more up-to-date translations. That, uh, and the reason this is important, because assuming that these modern translations are, are right, the passage is not teaching 
It is not teaching that an Israelite husband um, was required by God to divorce his wife if he found some indecency in her. It was not required to do that. All it was requiring, all that text that uh, we looked at, and I read a shortened portion of it, all it was requiring was that if an Israelite man did divorce his wife, um, for whatever reason, he had to give her a certificate of divorce specifying the reasons for the divorce, which was actually probably designed to protect her if she were to have a future possible suitor uh, um, and explaining what, what did and what didn't happen in the first marriage. Okay? That's important. But So now let's get to the, the question of what does this some indecency mean? Well, back in Jesus' day, there were two very common um, explanations. Uh, for what, uh, and one was more common, uh, I believe, anyway. Uh, and they were basically summarized by the two positions where the, uh, the followers of a guy named uh, Shammai uh, and the followers of another guy named, rabbi named Hillel. Some of you have heard of Hillel, maybe not Shammai, perhaps you have. Anyway, the followers of Shammai basically thought this, some indecency in math, uh, Deuteronomy 24 was a reference to adultery, straight up, Sexual infidelity in a marriage. That's what they said Moses is referring to there. And uh, so if if a woman is found to have committed adultery, the husband is to give her a certificate of divorce and be done with the relationship. But here's the problem with that view. That view uh, doesn't take into account the fact that God, in the Mosaic law elsewhere, demanded, what was the punishment for adultery? Death. Death for adultery by either party as punishment for that sexual sin uh, done in the context of a marriage. It was not divorce that was given as the reason, uh, as the punishment, but it was death. You put somebody to death if they were found to have committed adultery. Aren't you glad we're under the new covenant? At any rate, um, so this understanding of the followers of uh, Shammai, um, the school of Shammai, it's incorrect. It's clearly incorrect because it contradicts other portions of Scripture. There's a second view that was held commonly in Jesus' day, um, and that is the followers of Hillel, Hillel said that this indecency meant anything whatsoever about the woman that displeased her husband. In other words, uh, for example, what, whatever the ancient equivalent of she burned the toast, he could get a divorce. She burned my toast. Such a low bar for getting a divorce clearly does not square with God's high view of the institution of marriage and the commitment in that institution. So this Hillel interpretation um, is wrong, certainly wrong, but here's the key. That interpretation was the one that was, uh, was held by the Pharisees who were approaching Jesus. Notice what he says there, any, any, anything at all. Uh, in verse uh, 3, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all, which was their view? So it was held by the Pharisees, and you know what? Verse 10 indicates that it was probably held by Jesus' disciples as well. The disciples probably thought that. You don't like, you're tired of the woman, you can, you can send her away. Neither position is correct. 
Neither uh, interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 is correct. What's the meaning? Well, this is the probable meaning. We can't be uh, too dogmatic about this, but we can be pretty, uh, pretty precise, I think, and pretty certain. And that is this indecency, some indecency that Moses is referring to in God through him, is some improper or shameful behavior, perhaps connected with the sex life, but perhaps not, that greatly offended the woman's husband upon his learning of that behavior. So some improper or shameful behavior, not adultery, but some improper or shameful behavior that uh, offended him highly. Uh, and that caused him to say, I'm done. And it is clear, both from Deuteronomy 20, 20, Deuteronomy 24 text and from what Jesus says in verse 8, that divorce, for that reason, in the Old Testament age, was tolerated for some indecency. Okay? Uh, as I defined it just a moment ago. But, but, with the dawning of the a uh, new covenant era ushered in by the coming of the covenant mediator, the Lord Jesus, the time for toleration of divorce for some indecency, which was something other than adultery again, the time for that allowance was at an end. Basically, uh, the the new the new administration of the covenant of grace, with, now the mediator has come and there's greater light uh, and, and less excuse for such behavior as was allowed and tolerated uh, because it was, uh, was going to be done either way under the old covenant administration. The Jews were divorcing whether God liked it or not. Uh, that a tolerance or permit, permitting that evil, and that's what it was, uh, was no longer being tolerated in the new covenant era, which is what we're in right now. So, it is with one exception a serious sin for you or me uh, as Christians to initiate the dissolution of our marriage. A serious sin, yes, but by no means a sin that is unforgivable. Some uh, folks, many actually Christian folks, have for whatever reason uh, been a party to a divorce uh, where they have made a big mistake. Uh, perhaps uh, excused their participation in the divorce for reasons that weren't biblical. Uh, perhaps they thought they were right at the time, turned out not to be after uh, in hindsight. Whatever, Christians, many Christians have been divorced. It is not an unpardonable sin. It is nowhere close to an unpardonable sin. If you have made a mistake, if you have sinned in your past by... Uh, being a party to and uh, perhaps uh, being the main party to a divorce or the initiation of a divorce in your, uh, in your life. Um, all you need to do is tell the Lord, I'm sorry, Lord. And perhaps you've already done that. But if you haven't, all you need to do is say, Lord, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Would you please forgive me for Jesus' sake? And it's done. It's forgiven. And the Lord will not, uh, not bring it up again, as it were. So if you have sinned in this area, and you need to be honest with yourself, it's important that we don't excuse our sin. But God's word says what it says. We need to agree with it, whether it's comfortable to do so or not. We need to say, Lord, I am sorry for what I have done wrong. Uh, please forgive me. And he will. But we need to be contrite uh, and acknowledge our wrongdoing uh, 
as Christians. Uh, and God will give us the grace to do that um, if we are indeed Christians. Second point, there is only one circumstance under which a Christian, uh, you as a Christian, are allowed to initiate the dissolution of your marriage. And that is found in verse 9. Jesus says, and I say to you, actually let me back up to verse 8. And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way, alluding to those scriptures uh, that he cited earlier. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality. And so this is sexual immorality in a marriage, which is adultery, even though he doesn't use the word there, adultery. If he, uh, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits, he himself commits adultery. Uh, by having wrongly divorced his first wife and then remarrying again. And, of course, elsewhere we can d- discern from things that are said elsewhere in Scripture, that applies to the woman as well if she were divorced her husband. So, that's the, that's the only situation in which a Christian is allowed to initiate the dissolution of his or her marriage when the spouse commits adultery. Um, Jesus, in the New Testament age, brought two changes. He instituted two changes with respect to the sin of adultery that were not true in the Old, uh, old Covenant administration, uh, but are now uh, true in the New Covenant administration, where different uh, um, uh, rules apply, if you will. And first of all, what Jesus did was he abrogated, he did away with the Mosaic penalty for adultery which was death. Probably a fair number of us uh, uh, in the Christian world who are thankful that, that uh, again, uh, that uh, punishment is no longer required by God uh, for the sin of adultery. That's the first thing Jesus did. And the second thing he did uh, in the New Testament age, which wasn't true in the Old Testament period, was he legitimized divorce as a remedy for adultery by one's spouse. He legitimized divorce as a remedy for adultery. So, if a Christian's spouse, so uh, if a Christian's spouse commits adultery, that Christian, male or female, is allowed by God in his in the New Testament by Christ. He's not required, or she's not required, but is allowed to seek to end the marriage to that unfaithful spouse. That's allowed. And to end it with a divorce. And seeking a divorce. Now notice I keep emphasizing initiating, seeking. Uh, um, that, that it's a sin to accept under this one circumstance to um, initiate a divorce um, without being sin, sinfully doing so. This is the clear implication of what, uh, I won't reread it to you, but what verse 9 says there in chapter 19 of Matthew's Gospel. And his main point there in verse 9 is this. His main point is that to actively pursue a divorce for any reason other than infidelity on the part of one's spouse is a sin. That's the main gist of what he's saying. But he's also clearly implying something else by his wording here. Let me read it again. I will read it. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, accept for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. 
What he's clearly implying there, although it's not directly stated, but it's clearly implied, is that if one does initiate a dissolution of his or her marriage for this reason, for the cause of adultery by uh, the spouse, doing that, initiating the divorce, is not a sin. If you have an unfaithful spouse. It's not a sin. And that's the one time when a Christian can, without sinning, initiate the dissolution of their his or her marriage. But, is there any other circumstance besides when adultery has occurred? Is there any other circumstance in which a Christian can end up divorced without being in sin because of being a divorced person? The answer is yes. Turn to me, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says this. I'm going to start in verse 10, but the, the, what I'm going to focus on is verses 12 through 15 of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But I want to read verses 10 and 11 as well and say something most briefly about them, but uh, then I'll say more about 12 and following. So here it, here it is. Uh, Paul and God through him saying this. But to the married, I give instructions. In fact, I'll tell you ahead of time what I'm think, what, what's going on here. Verses uh, 10 and 11 uh, are speaking of divorce contemplated by two Christian people. 10 and 11 are speaking of divorce contemplated by two professing Christian people whose professions are, you know, who say, I, I love Jesus, I'm trusting Jesus, and so on. And, uh, and then verses 12 through 15 um, are speaking of the possibility of divorce between a Christian and a non-Christian. Okay? That's important to understand this passage. And if you have questions later, come up and talk to me and I'll, I'll re- reiterate what I just said. But so verses 10 and 11 for the Christian, uh, uh, two Christians who say they're Christians. But to the married, I give instructions. Not I, but the Lord. In other words, during Jesus' life, he said this specifically here in Matthew 19. Uh, but to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, let her remain unmarried uh, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not send his wife away. So that's the instructions to, to believers. Don't get a divorce. That's what he's saying. And if you've made the mistake already, then don't get remarried. Otherwise, you'll end up be committing adultery because if you were illegitimately divorced. Then he says this, and here's the part I want to focus on uh, in the remainder of our time here, which is uh, just a few moments. But to the rest, I say, in other words, to people that aren't in the situation of two married uh, Christians uh, in a marriage, but to the rest, I say, so Paul is adding to what the Lord Jesus said during his time on the earth, um, but still Jesus is speaking through him. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife, brother there means Christian, has a wife who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, let her not send her, uh, let, let her not send her husband, wait a minute, I'm just reading the wrong line here, sorry, let me try this again. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. 
and a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her. Let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. And then he says this, Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister, that means meaning the Christian, is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. What's going on there in verse 15 in particular um, uh, is, is he's saying if a Christian in a mixed marriage where there's a Christian and non-Christian together, uh, if a Christian is abandoned, is left by an unbeliever who leaves the marriage, that Christian is not required to fight the dissolution of the marriage, to fight the divorce. And that implies the fact that he's not required or she's not required to say, no, 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 I don't want that divorce. Uh, I don't want, I'm, I'm not going to uh, consent to a divorce. Uh, what, the fact that it's a, he or she doesn't have to do that implies that the Christian won't be sinning if the divorce takes place. See that? But what constitutes abandonment? Different opinions about this. Now, there's an obvious one, and that is if the admitted unbeliever, the person who's not, ma- not making any pretensions about being a Christian, if he or she says, I'm out of here, I'm done with this marriage, and walks out the door. That's obvious. That's, that's being abandoned by an unbeliever. And uh, it's okay. Uh, uh, that, that's, that's abandonment. That person has already walked away from the marriage and, and their commitment to it. There's also probably some other cases where abandonment is actually uh, de facto taken place. I'll give you examples of what uh, folks in reform circles uh, believe. Uh, it, it's probably the case that abandonment has occurred when an admitted unbeliever or somebody who professes to be a Christian, but isn't at the time, more than likely, um, when they, uh, that they are abandoning the marriage uh, by their actions, other than just saying, I'm out of here. So, for example, ongoing physical abuse. Arguably, uh, uh, a, a person, usually it's the man, but not always, has taken a vow to protect his wife. If he goes after his wife and starts beating her, he has abandoned the marriage already. He has left the marriage. Uh, you can make a pretty good case for that, and many people do. Another example would be failure to provide. Again, uh, historically and biblically, the man is supposed to provide for the family. If he doesn't, he doesn't provide. Uh, if he's a lazy bum and uh, uh, goes off and whatever, uh, irresponsible, uh, uh, gaming and uh, drinking or whatever, and isn't providing, that's arguably, and you can make a case for it, and there are differences of opinion, but that's arguably abandonment, de facto. Uh, habitual absence, just walking out the door and being gone for a month or whatever, and then showing back up uh, now and then. That is abandonment of the marriage, uh, uh, or there's at least a good case can be made for that. So if, uh, and if that's, by the way, if a uh, person who says he or she is a believer and does this kind of stuff, 
It's the duty of, a, of church elders to, to make a pronouncement about that marriage, I think. Uh, they should say, you have been abandoned. You are free to go to the judge and remedy the situation. Because, and here's why, um, when this happens, the divorce has already uh, unofficially occurred. Um, the, the unbeliever has done the divorcing already, or the professing Christian, uh, and the, it's the duty of the uh, session, the elders, to tell uh, the, the, the aggrieved party, you have been divorced by your husband, and we don't recognize your husband or your wife, if it's the wife, to be a Christian on the basis of their obstinate, uh, sinful behavior and refusal to, uh, to um, repent of their desire to get a divorce. And the, and the church should say, you are free. Um, uh, this is not your responsibility. And so, for if the abandoned Christian has to go to a judge uh, to make the dissolution of the marriage official, um, that does not constitute the kind of uh, initiation of divorce that Jesus is contemplating in verse 9 of uh, uh, chapter 19. So, divorce is, um, is something that grieves the heart of God, oftentimes angers the heart of God. It is, under the vast majority of cases, especially in our day and age, a sin on the part of the people that, the person who initiates the divorce, uh, and uh, because for unbiiblical reasons, uh, even though perhaps they were uh, even perhaps you know the other party was uh, uh, engaging in sinful behavior as well. But again, the point I want to leave you all with is that divorce is a forgivable sin. Um, Christians, there are many Christians who have been divorced, whom God has forgiven. Uh, doesn't make it right. Uh, and we need to be careful in our marriages and our relationships that we don't uh, veer into the kind of thinking that allows us to go, well, I can get a divorce because this, that, and some other thing other than adultery. And again, even in the case of adultery, it appears in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 7 that um, if one can be reconciled, uh, that that is, that is in some ways a preferable option to divorce. Uh, but uh, not required um, on the part of the aggrieved party. Divorce is important to God because why? The institution was created to mirror Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. That's why it's such a precious institution to God. That's why it needs to be a precious institution to God's people, and we should do everything we can in our own families and also in our collective church family to encourage um, uh, strengthening uh, our Christian marriages and our commitments to them. God alone can give us the grace to do that. Let's pray for that now. Lord, we thank you for this uh, grace uh, that you do give to believing uh, uh, people to, uh, to stay in um, legitimate marriages. Uh, it's not always easy, Lord. Uh, there's conflict that arises. Uh, there are uh, uh, There's pain. There's... Uh, uh, sin uh, that happens all the time between married couples and uh, Christian families. And so, Lord, it's, it's difficult at times to forgive. But uh, we know that it is your will that we uh, stay in our marriages through thick and thin, 
uh, and trust you for whatever grace we need to do that, except in the case of adultery. And even then, uh, you would perhaps prefer that we uh, seek to be reconciled. Lord, would you please give us the grace we need? This is a this is beyond us. This is this is heavy stuff. Would you give us the grace we need uh, to do what you've called us to do, whether we're married or single or divorced? And give us the grace. And we thank you, Lord, that you are a forgiving God and a God who has given us um, our bridegroom as our Savior. And we praise you for him. And we pray in his name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.